News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we do love talking about science here on the show, and whether you're a fan of comic books and science fiction or not, you have probably heard of the concept of a multiverse, right? The idea that there are parallel universes out there is a huge field of study, and one of the experts in that field is joining us now to talk about it. It's Lord Martin Rees, UK's Astronomer Royal and Fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge. Uh, Lord Rees, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be in touch. Can you explain this field of study then? So the legitimate field of parallel universes or the multiverse, how does this work? Well, let me first say it's really rather speculative because we don't know whether other universes exist or not. But it's an interesting speculation. And the way I see it is that it's a new step in expanding our cosmic horizons. If you go back a few centuries, uh, then... uh, It was thought that the Earth was the center of the universe. And then, of course, after Copernicus, it was thought the sun was, not the Earth. And then in the 20th century, uh, we learned that the uh, sun was just one star in the galaxy. And then we learned that our galaxy is just one of billions of galaxies in the observable universe. And those observable galaxies are all, uh, we think, the aftermath of a big bang, something that happened about 13.8 billion years ago and caused everything to expand from a mysterious dense state and galaxies formed then. Uh, But that's the horizon of our observations. But just as if you're on the ocean, you don't think the ocean ends at your horizon, uh, then in the context of cosmology, we don't think physical reality ends with what we can see. Okay, so we theorize that there are, what, how many, perhaps, parallel universes out there? Yes. Well, we don't know. There are some theories which say that um, the aftermath of our Big Bang uh, extends far beyond our horizon and could even be infinite. Um, But other ideas suggest that uh, um, the mysterious Big Bang, which started our universe, which isn't well understood at all, um, was uh, just one of many. In fact, the most vocal proponents of this idea um, was Professor Andre Linde, who's a professor at uh, uh, Stanford. And 30 years ago, he proposed an idea called eternal inflation. This was the idea that uh, uh, the universe was um, uh, expanding, but new big bangs were popping off all the time. And uh, they would be beyond uh, ability to observe them, uh, but they would exist. And so there could be a huge physical reality far beyond what we can observe. And the other interesting question is, um, if there were these other universes, would they all be governed by the same physical laws as ours is? I mean, uh, we know uh, that atoms in distant galaxies behave like the ones in our galaxy. We can study their light. Uh, But if we could look further away, then there might be domains where the laws of nature are different, and that would uh, affect chemistry and whether life could exist and things like that. So there are all kinds of fascinating speculations. Right. So the Big Bang may have happened in other areas and repeatedly, but that doesn't mean that everything else formed the same way, does it? Uh, no, no, it doesn't. And uh, uh, one, of, one of the limits is that um, the great achievement of cosmological studies has been to uh, understand in a fairly confident way what happened back to the time 
a billionth of a second after the Big Bang. And we could talk about that with as much confidence as what a geologist would tell you about the history of the Earth. And that's an amazing achievement compared to 50 years ago when we didn't know the Big Bang at all. But if we ask fundamental questions like, why is the universe expanding? Why does it contain the mixture of atoms and radiation it does? Then the answer to those questions lies deep in this first tiny, tiny fraction of a second. And the trouble there is that the laws of physics that prevailed are still not understood because the conditions are far beyond anything we can reproduce on Earth in accelerators or in the lab. And so we only have lots of theoretical ideas about the very early Big Bang. And then uh, we don't know how much its aftermath extends, and we don't know whether Linde is right in saying there would be many Big Bangs. It's still a speculation. Right, but as you point out, though, this is like theories that have been worked on in the last 50 years. Like, who knows what the next 50 years will tell us? It sounds like these kinds of theories and research, and it's going, it's growing in leaps and bounds. Well, it is indeed. Um, but uh, uh, the main hope is that we'll have a understanding of the physics which uh, applies at this very early stage. And this involves having a so-called unified theory, which links gravity, the dominant force on big scales, with um, uh, nuclear and electric forces which dominate what happens on small scales. And this has been a challenge for physicists uh, over the, the last 50 years. And there are lots and lots of ideas, but we can't be sure of any of them. And so let's hope that things firm up. And incidentally, to digress slightly, it could be that AI will help with the very difficult, difficult calculations that are needed mm. in some of these theories. So we just uh, hope for the, for the best. Um, but um, uh, just to... Uh, uh, reassure listeners that we don't think entirely about these speculations far away. Uh, another very exciting development in astronomy in the last 10 or 20 years has been realizing uh, something that Copernicus would have liked to know, which is that the other stars are like the sun and they are orbited by retinues of planets. And uh, we now know that most of the stars in our galaxy, the ones we can see in the night sky, are orbited by planets just as the sun is orbited by the earth and the other familiar planets and so uh, our galaxy is a vastly more interesting place than people thought even 20 years ago and there's been huge progress made just in the last few years in studying uh, these uh, other planetary systems and of course the question everyone asks is um, are some of them like the earth and if so did life get started on some of these other places and this is a uh, something which, uh, as an astronomer, I'm always asked by people. Uh, it fascinates everyone, and the hope is that we are uh, going to be able to have a bit more than just pure speculations and actually give some answers to uh, whether there are other places on which there's some kind of life. One would hope. I know. So exciting. Uh, Lord Rees, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. This is Mornings with Simi. Love that song. I was just enjoying it there for a second. Yes, we are talking about, well, the summer, which is, I think, here, although not officially. Unofficially, it is. Our contributor, Scott Schantz, is with us this morning. Scott, is this your favorite time of year? I don't see how it's not uh, anyone's favorite time of year. It's we, not mine. Uh, really? My favorite season is fall. 
I mean, I like fall, and I get why people say they like fall. And one of the great things about living here is we get all of the seasons. Yes, we do. But this, like, after going through winter and rainy spring and all of that, it just, this last week has felt glorious. Don't you feel that? I do feel that. It lasts for me about a week or two. Okay. And then I'm like, this is great. (laughs) A couple weeks, I would say. Okay. My favorite time of year is fall. Not to say that this isn't a wonderful time of year, which it is, but this upcoming weekend, I think, is the kind of unofficial kickoff, right? Yeah, to summer. Yeah, the May long weekend. For me growing up, that weekend, this weekend, this time of year always meant Cloverdale Rodeo. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's see, that's a good one. That's if you've lived in the lower mainland, uh, a tent pole of summer activities around here. Cloverdale, Absolutely. So. Yeah. See, I grew up in Abbotsford. So, uh, May long weekend was kind of the kickoff to camping, you know, whether it rained or not, yes. you would go camping and that meant camping season, uh, was here. But Simi, I do, uh, my pickup at the playground, like after school, I pick my daughter up from school and I end up having these type of conversations with all of the moms and There's a few dads, it's mainly moms, but we end up having these conversations. And around this time of year, it inevitably is, so what are your plans for summer? People are always asking, like, what are your plans? That's such a parent thing to ask. Oh, totally, right? It's like you're kind of making small talk. You don't really know these people that well. It's kind of, like you say, the parent thing to ask. And I'm always surprised when people say, we're going here or we're going there or we have travel planned. And I'm like, this is the best time to be in the lower mainland because it's finally sunny and you're going to leave like you're going to leave now. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But you know, the problem is that things, parks, beaches, things here get so crowded. Yeah. Like you should have seen the beaches last summer, last weekend. Yes. And I understand that. And I think that's true. So I think that um, one of the things that you and I could talk about, and I wanted to ask you about this, because like you mentioned the Cloverdale Rodeo, is what some of the the sort of unknown, the summertime hacks are around Vancouver and around the lower mainland and stuff, the places that people go and the things that people do that maybe aren't as discovered or as well known. Uh, I know Cultus Lake is a very, very popular place. I grew up in Abbotsford, so I often say to my family, you can bury my heart at, Cart- at Cultus Lake because it's just my Aww. favorite place in the whole world. It's so great. The lake is naturally uh, underwater filtered, so the water stays clean. There's so much going on out there. I actually went out there last summer and was just shocked at how crazy, crazy busy it is. But people often overlook, they go to Cultus Lake and they overlook Chilliwack Lake, which is out there and is gorgeous. It's a little bit of a further drive, but you can camp huh. there. If, you, if you're interested in getting away from the crowds and doing sort of a more uh, in the woods, like outdoorsy type of thing, Chilliwack is amazing. I will tell you the secret, not I wouldn't say it's secret, but the family park that we went to that I actually still think is great because it's not as crowded as some other parks, but I grew up going to this park. Still, we go to this Park. Okay. Is Campbell Valley Park. Okay. In Langley. I've never heard of it. It's at like 200th and like 16th Avenue. It's pretty big. It goes from like 16th to 8th Avenue and then goes across there. Beautiful, very like treed, forested, lots of beautiful walking trails, great awesome. trails, water. Um, and I just think it's a gem. Maybe not clearly. Scott doesn't know. He grew up in Abbotsford and totally. doesn't know Campbell yeah. Valley Park. It's wonderful. See, and these are the things that I'm looking for because, like I said, people are are going away and spending money to get out of the city when I think there's so much going on here. And I kind of do get the the want to go away, but 
it's just so great here right now. So what you want to hear from people is what is their kind of secret Metro Vancouver Fraser Valley place that they go to? Yeah, in absolutely. The absolutely. And I think that there are lots of little tricks and sort of things that you could, people could do, but they don't really think about it. Um, like for example, I know people who've lived here as long as we have their entire life and have never really explored the Gulf Islands. You know, they've maybe gone to one or two. And then when it's time for a vacation, you sort of go farther away, as opposed to exploring kind of what's in our backyard. I mean, I know a lot of people haven't even been north of, of Whistler, you know, Pemberton, that type of area. There's so Listen, much out there to explore. There's people who haven't even gone across a bridge. Fair enough. <laughs> right. So you're right. So we're looking for the secrets of summer, like your secret summer place. Yeah. What people should explore. I, I would love to know more about that. And I wanted to ask you, Simi, because this is another common question that I hear is when people come in town sort of doing touristy things, because if you're like, I'm sure at the Cloverdale Rodeo, you talk to people who are uh, here just kind of looking for ideas as well. I always tell people, and I know this is going to sound kind of touristy trap as well, but I'm interested in these too, because oftentimes those things are so great for a reason. My, my favorite, favorite, favorite thing to do is to bike around the Stanley Park seawall. Oh, that's like a classic though, isn't it? So we're looking, yeah, everybody does that. Fantastic idea. You want to know what secret things you people got should it. be doing. Yeah. Email. Scott at cknw.com. And then we can talk about it for sure. So email Scott, let him know what secret summer activity we should tell everybody else about. What's your secret spot that you go to? This is Mornings with Simi. Will this be the legislation that makes a difference when it comes to public safety and dealing with repeat prolific offenders? That is the hope, and that's a lot of hope for a piece of federal legislation. But yesterday, Justice Minister and Attorney General of Canada, David Lametti, introduced Bill C-48 to address those very issues. And this is something that BC has been hoping for for a while now, something that Premier David Eby has been lobbying for. So let's get the details on this. David Lametti, the Minister of Justice and Attorney General, joins us now. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning. What are your hopes for Bill C-48? What is in here that you think will make a difference? Well, it's it's the federal part, right, in the sense that we, we have... Uh, we have the responsibility for the criminal code and the, the provinces have the responsibility for the administration of the system of, uh, of bail and the justice system generally. So this is, this is our part. We're, we're trying, uh, we've listened to the provinces, we've worked with, uh, worked with the provinces. BC first raised this last October at a federal provincial territorial meeting. We've been working hard at both a technical level and a political level since then. Uh, to come up with uh, to come up with some targeted measures in the bail regime, which which we're doing. So we're trying to we're trying to make it more difficult for repeat violent offenders. We've heard that we've heard that cry uh, from the provinces and from the, and from the Canadian public generally, police police associations, etc. Uh, we've also expanded the the the. We also we're also trying to make it more difficult to get bail for a larger list of firearms-related offenses or weapons offenses, including knives and bear spray. What we've done is reverse the onus in that case. So a person has a right to bail, um, and, and normally it's up to the Crown to show why a person would be a threat to public safety. Uh, what we're doing in these cases is reversing the onus and, and uh, rendering it uh, a little more difficult by, by making it the person himself or herself that has to show why they should get bail uh, as opposed to the opposite. So we, we've changed the default provision on, on a certain number of cases. Okay. As this, do you think that this gives the legal system the tools 
that they were saying lacked essentially to, to take some of these actions to keep pr- prolific offenders behind bars. Does this give them the tools to do that? Well, I think it. I think it gives them additional tools in, in the first place. So, so again, uh, creating a reverse onus to repeat, repeat violent re- violent offenders with weapons, creating a reverse onus for an expanded list of, of weapons offenses. There's also an, an, a, a bolstered reverse onus for uh, cases of intimate partner violence. But, uh, but it also sends a message. Uh, we've also asked uh, judges or justices of the peace to take into account explicitly community safety at the bail stage. So, so in other words, to make sure that they've turned their attention to the safety of the community. There's a, a case up in Yukon where uh, an Indigenous community did not want an offender, uh, a potential offender, a charged offender coming in uh, on bail into their community because they were afraid of him. So we want we want uh, judges, justice of peace, to take that into account, and the whole of this sends a message to to crowns, to justices uh, of the peace, and to judges that we want them to, to jump through certain hoops in exercising their discretion in order in order to send the message that uh, we need to deal with with these kinds of of, of cases with a great deal of rigor. Was this a fine line to walk there, Minister Lametti? Because as you pointed out, you know, an offender has the right uh, not to be denied reasonable bail without cause, but at the same time, addressing these public safety concerns was, was becoming very important. It's very much a balance. We, we obviously uh, want to stay within the boundaries of the Charter. The Charter is one of our fundamental uh, guiding documents, as it should be. Uh, and and certainly I I for one as uh, as an attorney general have sworn an oath to protect that charter so so I I do believe we have we have maintained that balance here but we also have the question of of overrepresentation of of uh, indigenous and black and other racialized Canadians in in the criminal justice system I have taken measures as minister of justice to try to address that that quite shameful uh, set of, uh, of of facts in Canada. And, and what we are hoping here is that we haven't, by, by remaining targeted, by remaining focused on certain kinds of violent repeat offenses, weapons offenses, we won't upend our, our quest to make, uh, to, to eliminate those forms of, of systemic racism from the system as well. So there are a number of different balances here. We're trying to be sensitive uh, to all of them. Uh, we're trying to make sure that we, we can attack a single problem without creating uh, too many waves elsewhere. Okay, so how soon will this come into effect then? What is the process going to be? Well, it's, it's, I tabled the bill uh, yesterday in the House of Commons. I, I'm hoping that uh, if provinces come out uh, quickly in support, and, and, and Premier Eby and, uh, and uh, Attorney General Sharma have both indicated publicly their support for this legislation yesterday, um, it's also true for the government of Ontario. It's also true for the police associations across Canada who've come out in support. Uh, we're hoping that, that that kind of support will will create the momentum for a unanimous, unanimous consent motion in the House of Commons. Hopefully we get it through there quickly and then the Senate and and hopefully then it becomes law very quickly. Um, if it gets bogged down because of the Conservatives uh, in Parliament, then we're going to have, uh, it's going to take a bit longer. Okay. Would you say, though, that once done then, this now puts the ball in the province's court? Do you feel it gives the provinces the tools to deal with these issues that they have been raising with you? Well, it does with respect to the criminal code, and, and they have committed uh, to, to looking for ways to improve the administration of the bail system. 
BC's already taken measures. Uh, Ontario's taken measures. Manitoba has now taken measures. So the provinces are, uh, you know, are working with us on this. My colleague Marco Mendicino has has announced uh, last week uh, greater investments in in uh, the guns and gangs program, which was fairly popular with the provinces um, in terms of funding support for those kinds of anti anti gang initiatives, anti gun initiatives, and. Um, uh, he's also invested in community safety. So, again, this is a complex problem. It requires the, the federal government to work with the provinces and, and to some extent with municipalities to make communities safer, uh, attack mental health problems, attack housing problems that all are interrelated here. And so it's, it's, an, it's a whole-of-government approach with, with other governments, uh, and we're hoping to do that. I think we've got a good working relationship with B.C. and other provinces Hopefully we'll get there. Minister Lametti, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been talking a lot about like school overcrowding, particularly in Surrey with so many portables. Is there a different way for us to organize the system that would help out? What about something called Seamless Day Kindergarten? It's meant to combine school with before and after school care by using the existing school space. This is something that the province has been piloting in some areas, and now it looks like it's going a bit wider. So we thought, let's get the details on this. Joining us now is Grace Lohr, BC's Minister of State for Child Care. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Simi. What is Seamless Day Kindergarten? Yeah, Seamless Day is a really, really exciting pilot. What it looks like is uh, that we have early childhood educators in the classroom alongside kindergarten teachers. Um, And what that means for kids is that they can access before and after school care and um, have that continuity throughout the day with the same caring adults uh, who know them at school, who know how their day was. Um, And what it means for parents and families is it's one drop-off, one pickup. The ECEs that are in there with the um, teacher over the day know uh, if there's anything that needs to be passed on to the parents at the end of the day. So it really is seamless for both kids and for their families. Okay, so how how does this work then? So is it like using existing school spaces for childcare, essentially? Yes, exactly. And it is really um, exciting. We're seeing the impact. I've had a chance to talk to some of the parents who are in these pilots um, who share the benefit for their kids, uh, who share that it meant they went back to work as uh, essential workers, including one nurse. Um, But it really is only one of the days, one of the ways, rather, that we are looking at and um, making sure that families have opportunities for childcare uh, tied to their school, to their school community. Um, I, I, we're, as we're building new schools uh, or, or repairing, replacing, etc., cetera, um, we're adding space for childcare. We are looking and we're working with school districts on licensing the gym uh, and the library for before and after school care. So there's a lot of work happening around the province, and this is one really um, interesting and exciting component of it. Okay, because it seems to me that in a lot of areas, like you take a look at Surrey, they're already so crowded. Would you even have the space to do something like this? Sure. So the classrooms, the ECEs are in the classroom with the kids during the day and they use the same space. So in some cases, it doesn't require additional space. 
Um, I'm uh, traveling to communities this week because May is Child Care Month, a chance to hear from educators and providers. And I was visiting a school yesterday in Smithers. And the part of what they're doing is offering um, before and after school care in their gym and using one classroom. So that's not space that isn't um, being used during the day. It's space that after the bell goes, um, still provides space for kids to play, to have supervised play, um, and for their parents to be able to do that drop off and pick up in one place. Do you think this will help districts then kind of manage their space? Yes, I think there's a lot of opportunity here. We know that child care needs for families don't end when their kid enters school. And we know for many families when the bell goes at the end of the day, that isn't the mark of their end of their child care needs. And so to be able to work on finding opportunities to use that existing space um, and have that continuity for kids in the space that they, uh, their friends are, they're already there, um, and be able to provide that before and after school care in one place. Um, you know, I'll say there's other ways that this is happening that works for families. Uh, we were also visiting a $10 day site here in Smithers yesterday that's right across the street from a school. And they also do before and after school care. So do the pickup um, uh, and the drop off. And so finding ways across the province to integrate uh, the child care both zero to five, um, but also before and after in our school communities, work with our school partners um, to make sure that we're increasing that access um, and affordability. So in the future then, when we build new schools, because we still need to build a lot of schools, is this something that would factor into the equation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, We are um, working on a capital plan so that when we're building new schools, but not just new schools, you know, um, hospitals, housing, that we're thinking about the childcare needs of the community, of the people who work there. Um, at the, the school I was at yesterday where this new space was added as the school was built, um, there are teachers who have their kids in, in that uh, childcare, for example. So absolutely in our minds as we build new and schools, um, as we add schools, as uh, schools need uh, replacing as they age, it's really important. And we're working with districts to make sure that that space in the school, um, you know, we look for opportunities so it doesn't sit empty at the end of the day, but is part of before and after school care. Hmm, It's interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as we've been hearing, B.C. has been wanting bail reform from the federal government for months now. They have been lobbying for it. Did we get what we wanted? We heard from Justice Minister David Lametti earlier on the show this morning about the proposed changes that still have to make their way through Parliament, but they are on the way. So how will this impact us here in B.C.? To join us, Joining us now to talk more about that is Nikki Sharma, the Attorney General of our province. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's always great to be on your show. Do you see this one as a win for what BC wanted? Um, it certainly is um, an important amendment. We, I look, we've been looking over it um, yesterday and today, and it looks like they agreed with some of BC's advocacy and suggestions. So in there is a broad definition of, of, of violence for repeat violent offending. So if you're someone who's committed violence more than once and you're at a bail hearing, It'll make it um, easier for the justice system to hold you rather than release you. Um, and there's other parts of it that really help to increase 
we think, community safety. Of course, there are just amendments now like that have just been introduced, so they have to be passed, and we're looking forward to that happening. Right, but even after they're passed, how do how does it trickle down so that a judge feels like, oh, I can use this now? Yeah, so it would be it, it changes the factors that a judge will consider at a bail hearing. So it would make it more difficult for people to get bail if they're accused of like specific firearm offenses, repeated serious violent offending um, involving a weapon, and um, it repeat intimate partner violence. Um, it also would add a, an aspect that communities are saying that there's certain people that have a lot of impact on them. Um, and it tends to be a small group. So it, it, it allows the judge to consider community impact of that person. So is this person having a huge community impact through their behaviors? And that would be a consideration a judge would make to say, hey, like we should be holding this person. They shouldn't get bail because uh, public safety is, is an important factor here. Yeah, does this strike the right balance? I know that on the other side of things, people have raised, critics have raised concerns about this saying, well, wait a minute, there is a right to bail, you know, in this country. Absolutely. There's a right to bail. BC has been really targeted in what we've asked for. And we've said the Constitution and, and the right to bail and to be innocent before proven guilty are all very important parts of our of our, um, our, our criminal justice system. We targeted and we have advocated for repeat violent offenders. So a situation where public safety is such a concern with individuals, whether it's intimate partner violence and what could happen to that partner or repeat uses of weapons or repeated violence that shows up for individuals. And that's the one that we asked the federal bail policy to circle around and make changes about. But generally speaking, yeah, judges are there and the court justice is there to, to, to implement the constitution, to weigh rights and do all those things we expect them to do. So how do you see this being used then? So we hear about safety concerns over, you know, prolific repeat offenders coming to court. How, what kind of cases would you see this being used to keep that person behind bars? Yeah, so if somebody's come forward and they've had, they've done specific firearm offenses, I know that, for example, in, in um, out east, they were, they were advocating for use, repeated use of bear spray. If there's something in their record that shows repeated serious violence that involves weapons and they're before the court again on, an, on another offense, um, what the changes would do is ask the judge to consider that this person should be held unless there's a good reason to release them. So the onus kind of shifts from release unless there's a good reason to hold it to hold them unless there's a good reason um, to release them. And that, that's for public safety issues. It's not the only thing we're doing in BC. We've, we've got a lot of investments out there and programs that are that are stood up now about repeat violent offenders that are part of you know, circling around this group of people, figuring out what we need to do to make sure communities are safe and to break the cycle of crime for that person. Um, and we have, like, we're investing in mental health resources and investing in um, police resources and all the things that involve safety. So this is one part of it, the advocacy we've been doing on bail reform, but there's many other things we're working on. Okay, and are you confident or comfortable that prosecutors will use this, that this will be a tool that they will want, that they will employ? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think our biggest our biggest concern was without a change of law at the federal level, which affects the whole country, it's really hard for Crown prosecutors to ask for um, bail in circumstances and receive it from the judge, right, because of the, the way the law was. So we're hopeful that these amendments with their past will help help and ensure that if public safety is an issue, if there's repeat violent offenders, that they will be held in the justice system. Okay, and you mentioned there's other things that are being worked on. So what else do you think will make the difference here? Um, well, we stood up on May 1st repeat violent offenders uh, teams that are 12 hubs across 
um, the province. I think we talked about it earlier where there is a group of crown prosecutors, police and probation officers that are identifying repeat violent offenders and, and coordinating the plan and resources around those people. And the, the, the goal would be is to help to make sure that public safety is increased by, by having that coordination around certain people um, and making sure that resources can be used elsewhere. Because what we've heard from people, communities across BC, is it's often a small group of repeat offenders that are causing most of the problems. Um, we're investing in um, our CMP resources across the province and also mental health and addictions resources. We've, we've um, in the last budget, there's a billion dollars there that are going to mental health and addictions resources. Because we know that communities kind of across the world and definitely Canada have been seeing a rise in, in, um, in concerns with public safety after COVID. And, and so we're stepping up our response in many ways. Is this one of those situations where it's going to take time, right, for people to see and feel the results of, of these measures? But how long do you think before the public would notice a difference? Well, I hope these amendments will be passed quickly, and that would be the law of the land then. So it would immediately show up in the courts um, and the decision making. The repeat offender teams have been stood up as of May 1st. So they're actively right now identifying um um, identifying the files of repeat violent offenders. They're working through um, um, all the work that we're asking them to do, which is to come up with a plan for these repeat offenders. So that, that, you know, that, that'll be hopefully showing up soon in communities. A lot of the programming that we're working on, um, like better mental health supports with police officers and all these things are happening right now. So I'm hopeful that it'll start showing up in communities um, very soon. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. No problem. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. Nikki Sharma is the Attorney General of BC talking about all these different measures that are being put into place essentially to make us feel safer because public safety, concern about what we see happening in our communities, and this is all over the province, right, has been top of mind for so many people, for so many voters. That is top of mind. So my question to you this morning is, we've heard about all these measures, right? These are all the things that governments are kind of throwing at that to try to fix the problem do you think these measures will work? Now, the bail reforms, that's a big one. That means that the judges will now have the tools, the prosecutors will have the tools to ask to keep a repeat prolific offender behind bars, especially when there's violence involved. But you have to, has to be put into action, right? Do you think that we are on the right track to making a difference here? What else do you think needs to be done? This is Mornings with Simi. Well, time now to introduce you to another extraordinary British Columbian, someone who has been and is making a difference, and maybe you didn't even know all about it. So we all know the difference that Terry Fox made to cancer research. But our next guest, Dr. Alan Eves, is one of the people responsible for putting those ideas and funding into action. In 1981, he co-founded the Terry Fox Laboratory for Hematology and Oncology Research. He has spent decades working on cancer researchers, helping to pioneer treatments and technologies. And even when he had to retire, he was required to retire, he then founded a company to do even more research and create even more hope for people all over the world. A company that has more than 2,000 employees everywhere. He has an order of BC. He's got an order of Canada. So now we would like to introduce you to an extraordinary British Columbian, Dr. Alan Eves. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, good morning. Tell me, when did you get started in cancer research? Like, when did you realize, okay, this is something I need to work on? Uh, when I was in high school, actually, one of my friends had a mother who, who 
had a very serious operation and survived it and then developed breast cancer and, and went on to die. And I, I thought this was so unfair, this young mother. And, uh, and I said, uh, I'm going to think about devoting my life to doing cancer research. And so was it difficult at that time? Like how much cancer research was being done? Well, this was when I was really quite young. I was initially I was going to be a marine biologist, and then I realized that that was a difficult area to to get into, and and that and that cancer was a more important problem. And how would I do that? So I took a master's degree at Dalhousie University in in what was sort of cell biology in those days, and then I realized that really to do this properly, I needed a medical degree. So I I was able to uh, uh, get into the medical school and. Uh, and did that, and then I became fascinated with with hematology, which is, uh, you know, where leukemia, the and and stem cells which uh, go wrong and cause leukemia, and so I then moved to the University of Toronto and took my PhD there with uh, doctors Till and McCullough, who are the pioneers in stem cell biology and 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 led new ways of thinking about it, leukemia and how to approach its treatment. Right, and then, and then Terry Fox yeah. came along. <laughs> nope, not then. Then I fell in love with one of the uh, one of my colleagues at the University of Toronto, and she got a job out out in uh, Vancouver at the uh, BC Cancer oh. uh, Foundation, and and that, that was when they were there was only a small group of them, like half a dozen scientists, and uh, they were trying to develop a new type of radiotherapy, and. Um, and so she was uh, part of that group, and I came out and finished my clinical training in medical oncology uh, and internal medicine, and um, and uh, and then uh, uh, then I thought that uh, I, I knew I was going to do research. So I got a, fortunately they just had, the provincial government had just come out with a, a scholarship program for people to. For, for for clinical people to actually continue to do research, so I I had a salary of thirteen thousand dollars to devote myself totally to research and not have to worry about you know the clinical side of things at that time, and and that was a great boon and 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 of course that program eventually became the Michael Smith Foundation and continues to support uh, trainees at all levels. You've really seen things change during that time, haven't you, in, ter- in terms of the amount of, of dedication and, and how much research is being done in these fields? Oh, yeah. There, when we first came here, there wasn't that much research. The medical school was still pretty young, and and they were just dealing with, with training people and, and, and getting sort of standard therapies in place. But, um, uh, you know, the, the Terry Fox thing was good. So my chief of medicine uh, said uh, they were... Uh, Everybody's raising money for Terry, right? And yeah. and uh, he thought that the provincial government should put some money into it, and 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 they and they said they would, but only if the money stayed in British Columbia. So we were able to get a million dollars to support building what became the Terry Fox Laboratory, and um, and of course Terry was doing his run, and then you know he of course had a problem and and things deteriorated in his condition. And so he came out and, and they were making a video of him. And, and the first showing of it was in the BC Cancer Research Center. And, uh, and Terry was there, but he didn't want to see this mid- movie. He wanted us, my wife and I actually, to show him around the, what, what, what our lab was and, 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 to, uh, and to see how, how the research was going. And he was a very smart, intelligent young man 
very interested in research, which really was driving him. You know, he could see that more more money needed to go into research if we were going to deal with this disease or diseases. So, so that was a, a you know a highlight of my career. No kidding. Yeah, I can imagine. To talk to him. Yeah. So forty years later, though, Doctor Eason, how are we doing in the fight against cancer? Well, the major major progress has been made, but it, it is very slow. I mean, this is like a hundred different diseases, all different, all all um, all all complicated, and so it 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 takes time. But there's no question that improvements have been made in in the treatment of leukemia and 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 breast cancer and all the other cancers. I mean, the chemotherapeutic agents and the and the ability to use targeted radiotherapy and and so on is is really uh, greatly improves things, but it but there's still a long long way to go. This this is a very complicated uh, problem about why cells start to grow uncontrollably, and and how to manage it. It's 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 difficult. Right, but it's continued to fascinate you. It sounds like. Oh, absolutely. So uh, I mean, <clears throat> one of the things that are, is really critical in doing research is that you have reagents that, that allow you to uh, do experiments that, that then allow you to compare your results with other laboratories. And so that's one of the things that we started doing in the Terry Fox lab was to make tissue culture media for growing blood-forming stem cells and, and under, trying to understand how they would change and become leukemic. And, and, and all those studies were needed the a standard set of reagents. Uh, and so we started making those and selling those around the world to everybody, all our colleagues. And that allowed us to compare the results from one lab to another, no matter where the work was done. And so we've continued on with in stem cell technologies that actually provide more and more of standardized reagents and, and ways of doing things that are comparable. So, so when it brings together the, the global research community and helps them move things along faster. Right. But BC remains, it feels like, a, a pretty great place to do this kind of work. Uh, what, why do you think that is? Well, BC is, there, there's, a, there's a pioneer spirit in British Columbia. And also, when you, when you move here and take a job here, you don't want to leave. And of course, stem cell technologies and science in general, you want people who are, who are staying in the same place and keeping their knowledge and, and communicating that knowledge to the next generation and, and building on it. And so, uh, uh, you know, British Columbia is a great place to live a reasonable life and raise a family and, and, and do good things. So that's why we're here and we're going to stay here and we're going to build our businesses here. I love hearing that. So for you, the curiosity continues. Like you don't sound like you're going to retire anytime soon. You are still looking for answers. <laughs> right. No, I jokingly say I'm going to understand uh, uh, immortality through, through stem cells. But, you know, that's probably unlikely to occur in my lifetime. <laughs> but I'd like to think that I'm going to just go on for a long, long time. I'm having a ball, you know, taking it making opportunities for young people who love science and want to make the world a better place is really what I'm all about. And that's what, that's what my company stem cell is, is all about. So we're, we're having a great time. We've got all these wonderful, smart young people all making major contributions to, to the, to the tools and reagents and support needed for cancer and other researchers to do their jobs better. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity. And you're helping them do it. Dr. Eves, thank you so much for your time. 
Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.